0: Good evening, everyone. So, just testing microphone. Okay, am I coming through clear? Good. Uh, So, actually, um, I'm going to share the screen for a moment, and. so mimi i'm wondering if you could unmute and please read the third realization for us sure and and take it slow give us us a space after each sentence so we can just sit with the, the the meaning of the words the impact of the words okay the third realization is the awareness that the human mind is always searching outside itself and never feels fulfilled. This brings about unwholesome activity. Bodhisattvas, on the other hand, know the value of having few desires. They live simply and peacefully so they can devote themselves to practicing the way. They regard the realization of perfect understanding to be their only career. Thank you. you. So this might be my favorite of the realizations, you know, and not the bits about the endless, uh, the being caught by the searching mind or the endless pursuit of searching outside ourselves. But the later parts, the later parts, the living simply and peacefully, the notion of devoting ourselves to the way and the piece de resistance, the aspiration to realize perfect understanding and that aspiration being our only career. As Juby would say, wow, (laughs) Hmm. so let's dive right in the human mind is always searching outside itself and and never feels fulfilled you know we don't need a lot of explanation here this just rings true it's certainly true of westerners you know we are give me the rules people give me the rules tell me how to uh, how to, to show up and how to behave in order to get along. But it's it's true of us, not only as individuals, but as a culture, as a species. Human beings are constantly looking outside ourselves. For what? For answers. For confirmation that we're okay. And that we're doing the right thing, that we're behaving acceptably. <clears throat> we, seek our, outs, outs, we seek outside ourselves to, to help solve problems in every dimension of our human life. You know, many of us reach adulthood with unresolved um, social and emotional baggage from childhood. We look to our parents for validation, for confirmation that we're okay. We turn to others for advice on an inexhaustible list of things, diet, lifestyle, health, uh, food, fashion, um, how we look and dress, how we feel about ourselves. One, one of my favorite memories uh, uh, on a self-help thing was was the day timer. For those of you who were working 25, 30 years ago, we had day timers and they started as simple things and they got bigger and bigger and thicker and thicker. And they promised if you would just fill out all these documents and follow this process, you'll be in control. Hi. I could show you the binder that I... I eventually had a, a, a full-size binder size for a day timer, and now I use that for my wedding scripts when I'm doing performing wedding ceremonies. The day timer's long gone. So we look for validation. You know, we we surrender how we feel our, about ourselves to others. We ab- abdicate that. Responsibility. <clears throat> I'm going to share something pretty intimate with you guys. So in my family and in my professional life, I was used to getting a lot of attaboys. Um, I came to depend on them and and craved the recognition. And then I met my teacher, uh, Eileen, and I studied with Dharmacharya Eileen Kira for about 20 years. And in, in that time, I was a practice leader at, at Mindfulness Community Puget Sound and Mountain Lamp Retreat Center. I coordinated orientations and for new practitioners and, and weekly practice activities and retreats and fundraising. I worked really hard. I expected my teacher to acknowledge my hard work. Uh, Eileen was so intuitive, she zeroed right in on that with me. And I can count on one hand the times in 20 years she gave me some sort of so of positive feedback. So, and I'm watching my behavior and my mind as I looked at, like, what was going on there? How distressing that was for me not to get the feedback. You know, I, I realized that that one of the reasons I was doing the work was for accolades, I wanted my teacher to think well of me and whether or not she, uh, withheld positive reinforcement <laughs> deliberately or not, uh, I began to, to watch my ravenous need for recognition and validation from outside myself. And I learned instead to find validation within, to simply enjoy a job well done. To do the work, just for the sake of doing the work. Just as Thai had been teaching me for years, just do the dishes. Just walk. Just sit. I was able to do the work for the sake of the Dharma itself. And I'm so grateful that my relationship with my teacher taught me that, you know, whether she intended it or not. How do we search outside ourselves? The, the self-help industry, we read self-help books, we listen to podcasts and watch TV series and go to church and hire life coaches and buy seminars and watch infomercials. And, and we come to Sangha more about that in a second. In 2016, the U.S. self-help industry was worth $10 billion. And it was projected that by 2022, it would be worth $13 billion. And we already hit that. And it's just 2021. I want to talk about millennials for just a second those born between 1981 and 1996, they are increasingly the most important target demographic for the self-help market. They've, they're have they abandoning millennials. They're moving on from us. For those of you who are included in us. <laughs> um, there are 75 million millennials in the United States. And so that's quite a chunk of... Uh, a, a, a part of the of the fabric of society that that will, once we can do it again, wants to travel. And there's a, just this really interesting study that I read called Generation Travel. It was done by Hotels.com, so you know what their interest was. But they've uncovered what they call the intrepid self-improver. And it happens to be millennials. And this, this new type of millennial traveler, and they shun the sun and sea and all-inclusive resorts. And what their focus is, is self-betterment. Self-betterment for them is about maintaining or improving their mental health, about improving themselves, about staying fit and healthy, about gaining inspiration that thing that I thought was really interesting was that they gave percentages for all those things. And, uh, there's just a, a small percentage, uh, that, that their focus is on finding a relationship on finding love. It's like 6%. Their whole focus has become self-betterment. So we, we look to so many things outside ourselves. Validation, satisfaction, permission, and and love. And we base our happiness on factors that we can't control. (laughs) And therefore, we end up disappointed. The human mind does all this searching and yet never feels fulfilled. It's always searching outside ourselves, Somebody else, anybody else. A guru, a god, a mentor. A hero, a role model, always looking for someone else to have the answers, to rescue us, to save us, to make us feel good enough, to make us feel good about ourselves. And I just wanted to talk for a moment about how self-help can be harmful. Self-help does wonderful things. And. And uh, uh, the the, uh, boomers were kind of the self-help generation. Um, But let's look at self-help. It's based on a comparison that will always cause you suffering. You, You know, comparing you to this fit person that you're not like, or you to this great chef that you can't cook like or or who uses cookware that you don't have or comparing yourself to this successful or wealthy person that you are not the invitation is to compare and always find yourself wanting self-help reinforces reinforces a focus on self (laughs) It's in the name. (laughs) Buddhism teaches us not to get caught in the idea of a self. It's a fiction, a construction. They're teaching a non-self. Self-help often focuses on the window dressing, the superficial, the ego self, the small self. Another thing is what works for you may not work for me, you know, and and I'm disappointed when I try and don't succeed like the person promoting the advice. And then it's really harmful if, if people follow bad advice, wrong advice, or even misunderstand good advice. And there've been people that come up to me, have come up to me in a, after a Dharma talk. And they said, you know, when you said this, it really, really moved me to do XYZ. This is what I'm going to do. And I didn't remember saying anything close to what they heard. So uh, even a person can, we can offer good advice and it's the way it is heard. Um, certainly, I take ownership for the way I said it, <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we need to consider um, when we offer advice, how does it sound? How is the other person hearing it? And it's probably a good idea to validate what they're hearing. So what is the role of, of Sangha and Te, Han, retreats? Isn't this search for fulfillment? at least part of the reason that we're all here together. It's why we're here tonight. Yeah. We hope to hear something that will break us open, help us finally break through and wake up. And we're always left feeling unfulfilled, feeling that there's something more, there's something I'm not getting. I'm not getting something. And if I could just get it, then I'd be okay. Our, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, a turning word, turning word, T-U-R-N-I-N-D word. Um, in our, in Zen parlance, <laughs> uh, uh, they were words that Zen masters would say to provoke an awakening experience in their students to make them instantly see things in a new way. And there are dozens of stories of Zen masters who speak a turning word and their student is ah, instantly enlightened. Are we waiting for a turning word? A turning word experience. What often gets overlooked as those students have spent years and years and days and nights of practice and study and meditation and searching their own minds. A good teacher can sense that and say just the thing that's needed for the student to wake up in the moment. So if you're waiting for a turning word let's be preparing the ground let's prepare the ground with our practice you know deep down intuitively um, we all know at our core that our leaders and teachers and coaches and gurus and Advertisers can't save us. Everybody, teachers included, everybody else is just as human as we are. We make mistakes. We mess up. People disappoint us. You know, we put people on a pedestal. And boy, that that's a, a, a rough thing to do to someone because they're always going to fall off. <laughs> they're always going to fall off that pedestal. You know, I, I remember uh, when I first came to Sangha, I really expected Sangha and teachers to be different than the rest of society. But we are a society. We're all a slice of that society. And people fail us. And when, when people fail, of it, fail us, it just leaves us even more disappointed and unfulfilled. It's because we're searching outside ourselves. Our lives get filled with unmet expectations. We lose heart, we lose confidence, we lose hope. And when spiritual teachers let us down, we begin questioning whether the pursuit of spiritual fulfillment and awakening is even worth it worth the effort is it even possible it just keeps coming back that the heart of the problem is looking outside of ourselves and it brings about unwholesome activity and i wanted to talk about the word unwholesome that word was a trigger uh uh, for for some folks when we were uh um, discussing the first realization that the body is the source of all unwholesome actions, and both at AMC and uh, and two pumps up, we spent some time de- debating and discussing that line. So, for the purpose of our practice, unwholesome means uh, well. Uh, what the issues that people had were that it sounded moralistic and legalistic. And so let's unpack unwholesome for the purpose of this 10-week practice period. Unwholesome means not characterized by or conducive to well-being. Not characterized by or conducive to well-being. John and I had a conversation about this, and and John says he sees uh, uh, unwholesome activity is the activity that arises when we operate from the small self. And my thoughts on it were, I like taking the words unwholesome, unwhole. An unwholesome activity is just part of reality, part of the truth. That can be expressed differently. When it's not just our small self but our whole self that we bring forward our integrated self our non-self and, and some people ask aren't there good desires doesn't doesn't desire give birth to some wholesome activity as well so i am so excited to show you all something so i have this friend who collects uh, bronze artifacts from the Silk Road period that we talked about when we first started this practice period. So around the first century of the Common Era. So he collects artifacts from the Silk Road period and the Edo period of J- in Japan. And, and I'm actually going to show you, I'm going to show you. Um, Can you see that? Can you see the... Is, can, you see can you see it? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so this is just one small part of one room in this man's house. And he just has this, this uh, amazing collection. And we came to this one statue. And and I said, Who is that? I've never seen that one before. And he said, Oh, that's Ajanmyo Bodhisattva, the wisdom king. And among his attributes is converting sensual desire into spiritual aspirational intention. So this this bodhisattva symbolizes for us how in Buddhist practice The energy of carnality and desire can be transformed into the pursuit of enlightenment. In English, we have one word for desire. In Pali, there are two words, tanha, which is thirst. The thirst that John was talking about in the last Dharma talk, number two, realization number two. And then chanda. C-H-A-N-D-A, and that means spiritual aspiration. So spiritual aspiration has a face, and uh, and that was it. (laughs) Spiritual aspiration apparently has a red face. So bodhisattvas, on the other hand, know the value of having few desires. You know, we don't look outside ourselves for validation. It comes from within. And there's this lovely paradox. When we stop looking outside ourselves for validation, when we give ourselves permission and validation and love, we're much more likely to get these things from other people. You know, the value of having few desires, that thirst and craving, back. And I want to make a point here. And that is um, desire is who we are. You know, I hear and see this tendency among us as we've been talking about desire um, to conclude that it, it, the desire itself is bad, but it's part and parcel of who we are. You know, John invited us to look closely and watch kind of as desire pops up again and again. And I was really with that in the, uh, in the week after his talk on that subject i saw how desire works it's right there it's like breathing in and out it comes every single moment so our work is to observe how it works best to notice how it controls us and here's the key to the whole evening what's the antidote to this tanha to this desire, this endless craving, this endless searching outside ourselves. It's to cultivate contentment. The definition of contentment is being okay with things exactly as they are and not just okay, but in alignment. You know, John and I have this dear sister, Sangha sister, whose husband is dying. And as he's nearing the end of his journey, and his energy is decreasing. Our friend is aligning her energy with his. And they're having, they're experiencing this beautiful, open, blooming together. Contentment is realizing and actualizing that nothing has ever been in control and will never be in control. Control was another issue we all talked about a couple of weeks ago. Contentment is realizing that nothing has ever been in control and never will be in control. Control is an illusion. Contentment. Hmm. Contentment means the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. As Tai compared our practice to Christian practice. Contentment. Contentment. Bodhisattvas live peacefully simply and peacefully. And what is that? Simply, Un- uncomplicated, relinquishing that quest for control, R- relinquishing the idea that we need more, relinquishing our vex- ex- vexations. We read again about vexations that we worry about, things that that's what they are the things we worry about. And when read the Discourse on Love, it tells you a lot about living simply and peacefully in perfect tranquility, restfulness, reposefulness. Read the Discourse on Love and see what it says about living simply. Living in beauty with senses calmed, without being covetous, and carried away by the emotions of the majority. Why do we live simply? So we can devote ourselves to the way. And what is the way? That sounds like there's just one way. But Bodhisattva vow, we know that there are countless Dharma doors. And we say, I vow to wake to them, I vow to realize them. Countless, that sounds like a lot of work. But we can each choose one door, whether it's meditation or study, whatever our practice is that really brings the Dharma to life for us, that is our Dharma door. We have to, uh, well, uh, actually I think I'm not gonna talk about that tonight. <laughs> I'll save that for another time. We require the realization of perfect understanding to be our only career. And what's that mean? First, what is career? Career is our profession, our occupation, our vocation, our calling. What's the origin of that word, profession? Something we profess, that we testify to, that our career testifies to what we value. Career is what we do with our day-to-day life, how we actually spend our time. And what does the Bodhisattva profess? An aspiration to realize perfect understanding And what is that? So I'm going to share with you. I'm going to actually copy and paste it so that you you can get it. So I'm going to share with you my definition. How, uh, what works for me, what's alive for me. We aspire to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works. Boom. (laughs) We aspire to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works. And overcome our enslavement to it. Did that go? Hmm. We learn how to recognize how the mind works by watching it. That's what we do in meditation. We watch how the mind works and that leads to insight, which is the capacity to, to gain an accurate, deep and intuitive understanding of our situation and insight leads to wisdom. That's the quality of having um, experience and knowledge and good judgment. And wisdom is the gateway to our liberation. When we free ourselves from the enslavement to the mind, we become happier. And coincidentally, we, we make the world a happier place. We practice clear seeing and practice loving kindness. One morning after practice last week, after morning meditation, Judith said, love and clear seeing are what I want to pass on. I want them to be my continuation. What a wonderful aspiration and legacy. Love and clear seeing Wisdom does not arise from, from somehow figuring it all out. Realization of perfect understanding is realization of our Buddha nature. We awaken to the way um, by completely and with full on authenticity being our true self, we are by nature Buddha, as ice by nature is water. All beings by nature are Buddha. We wake. We awaken when we practice ordinary mind. There's a a, a, a conversation between two of our. Zen ancestors, our Japanese Zen ancestors, Joshu and Nansen. And Joshu asked, what is the way? And Nansen uh, answered, ordinary mind is the way. And Joshu said, should I direct myself to it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. And Joshi says, well, if I don't try to turn toward it, how can I know that it's the way? This is what Nansen says. The way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is a delusion. Not knowing is blank consciousness. When you reach the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and as boundless as space. Those were turning words because the next thing we hear is, "At these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened." So, what is this ordinary mind? What is this ordinary mind? I'd like to read a, a poem to you by Lin Chi. Lin Chi um, is a Chinese Zen master from the I think the twelfth uh, century. No. Uh, I have that wrong. Probably, yeah, I think he's eighth century or ninth. Um, and uh, Thich Nhat Han traces our lineage back through Lin Chi as a teacher. And in in uh, in Vietnam, we call them Lam Tay, Lam Tay. So you've heard Thai talk about Lam Te. So let me just read this to you. Close your eyes. Just be yourself. When it's time to get dressed, put on your clothes. When you must walk, then walk. When you sit, then sit. Just be your ordinary self in ordinary life. Unconcerned in seeking for Buddhahood, when you're tired, lie down. The fool will laugh at you, but the wise man will understand. Just be ordinary and nothing special. Eat your own food, move your bowels past water. When you're tired, lie down. Ignorant will laugh at me, but the wise will understand. Just be ordinary. And conclusion, I would say my only career, my calling is to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works and to overcome its uh, enslavement of me. There's a a paradox that the Buddha Dharma teaches us, we are uh, perfect exactly as we are. And Suzuki Roshi was famous for saying, and you could use a little work. So I don't know about you, but I can see I have a little work to do. My only career is to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works. join me. Thank you.